0: You are listening to episode one of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter one, Neris, 2351, August 13. Call me Ishmael. Yeah, I know, but in this case, it's really my name, Ishmael Horatio Huang. My parents had an unfortunate sense of humor, but had they known what I'd wind up doing with my life, they might have picked a different name—Richard Henry Dana, perhaps. Why they picked Ishmael Horatio is a long and not terribly interesting story that begins with, my mother was an ancient lit professor, and it ends with my being saddled with these non-sequitur monikers. That story was over eighteen staniards before the two nearest company security people showed up at my door with long faces and low voices. Perhaps it was their expression, and perhaps it was that they were looking for me and not Mom, but I knew it wasn't good. I was pretty sure they hadn't come to drag me away. I'd never been a troublemaker, not like some of the other kids in the University Enclave. They had come for me, though, to tell me she was dead. It was a sort of an unreal kind of kick-in-the-gut feeling. I knew they were telling me the truth, but I couldn't quite grasp it. "'Flitter-crash,' the tall one said. "'It happens.' Not a lot, but enough. You know it can happen, but it always happens to somebody else. It wasn't even her flitter, but Randy's, her boyfriend. He was dead, too, the short one said. They spoke to me gently, and their voices just washed past me. Nothing really seemed to stick. They finally left me alone. Eighteen Staniers was old enough to live on your own on Naris. I wasn't taken to Juvie Hall or put into foster care or anything. That night I just kept walking from room to room. I woke up sprawled on the couch next morning, but I didn't even remember sitting down. As bad as that night had been, morning brought something worse. Lawyers. First the plantation lawyers showed up and notified me they were suing the estate for the damages to the Grand Apple Vineyards where the flitter had crashed. We're sorry, Mr. Huang, the lawyer said, although she didn't sound it. Mr. Lawrence had inadequate insurance on the vehicle to cover this kind of damage. In order to protect our clients' interests, we have filed liens to recover appropriate damages. I stared at her and asked, So why are you here? She wouldn't look me in the eye when she said, We are in the unenviable position of placing liens against the estates of both parties involved in the crash, since there's no way to determine who'd been driving. The flitter came apart in mid-air, you see. The falling debris and... Um, Remains damaged an estimated square kilometer of vines. That was more detail than I needed at the moment. Next, a company lawyer showed up with the eviction notice. I'll give them their due, they were very sympathetic. Mom was, had been, a Naris Company employee, a member of the faculty at the University of Naris, but Mom was dead, which meant I had 90 days to become employed by Naris Company or leave the planet. Survivor benefits only applied if you were killed on the job. Dying on your day off didn't count. In the middle of the afternoon, an email from Neris Company's Human Resources Department arrived to let me know that there were no jobs on Neris for unskilled labor. As a company planet, of course, they were the only employer of record. So, thank you very much, Naris Company. The last bad news of the day came from the family solicitor assigned by Neris Company. He showed up at my door in the late afternoon, wearing a bad suit and a tie with soup stains on it. "'Mr. Wong,' he began, after we'd settled at the kitchen table, "'I'm so sorry for your loss. This one, of all my visitors that day, seemed to mean it. I don't want to take up more of your time than necessary, but you need to know where you stand with your late mother's estate.' I nodded for him to go on. "'There isn't one,' he said simply. You may know that, as a faculty member, she didn't earn a great deal, and while it allowed you to both live relatively comfortably here on Nair's, it didn't generate a lot of surplus. He was almost apologetic. I almost felt sorry for him. He took out the paperwork, then, her life insurance and will, and the settlement forms from the vineyard liens, and we spent the next half-stand going through them on a sign here and here and here days. Last, I had to sign off on the insurance payout forms in order to get the check. The payout had already been calculated based on the plantation claims and funeral costs. The nearest company people were efficient, I had to admit, barely a day, and here they were with a check. The check would cover my rent for ninety days. I could accept it and settle up, or I could fight it and be tied up in probate court with nearest company judges and nearest company lawyers for the next nearest company year. Company planets suck. I signed, but what choice did I have? Three days later, a courier brought the urn with her ashes in it to the door. I didn't ask who or how, when or where. I just sat her on the coffee table. She liked coffee, and we'd spent a lot of time sitting at that table with our feet on it, sharing coffee and telling stories. And that was it. Nobody else showed up at the door. Not my mates from the Enclave, not company people, not Mom's colleagues from the University. Nobody. Nobody. To be fair, I didn't have a lot of friends to begin with. I'd read about best friends in novels and such, but I'd never actually had one. Angela Markova was the closest when I was a kid, but she left Planet when her father took a job with another company at the end of Fifth Form. I'd never really found anybody else to take her place. There was something about being booted off Planet, too, that made you instant pariah, don't add water. I'd seen it before with people who'd run foul of Nera's company. I could even understand why none of the people I normally hung around with came to offer condolences. Within 90 days, I'd have to be gone, and nobody wanted to be associated with me. For a week, I just went through the motions from day to day. Eventually, the voice in my head stopped saying, I can't believe she's dead, and shifted to, Now what am I going to do? Mom and I had been on Naris alone, if you didn't count the Randys, and the Davids, and the occasional Dorises, for most of my life. Dad was somewhere over in the Diurnia quadrant. He'd never been a big influence in my life, and I didn't even know what system he was in, let alone his address. I'd planned to start university in the fall. Growing up with a professor, attending university wasn't ever optional, it was a given. We'd had several long, occasionally heated discussions on the subject. I really hadn't wanted to make a decision about what to do with the rest of my life with so much of it, theoretically, left ahead of me. Over time, I'd come to think that there might be some value in getting a degree in plant biology, perhaps or at least in agreeing to go, to get her to stop bugging me about it. Because naris is a company planet, enrollment at the University of naris was restricted to company families. In spite of that, the University of naris had one of the best biology departments in the quadrant. Close association with a planet full of grand apple vines and the related corporate incentives had something to do with it, no doubt. So attending the U of N had seemed like a good option. I just didn't know what to do with myself, when that option expired.
1: grow with shopify sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/realm all lowercase go to shopify.com/realm now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com/realm
0: by the end of that first week it became clear that i had a serious problem Passage off planet cost more than I had. A lot more. Several kilocreds more. I couldn't afford to buy passage off the planet, and I wasn't going to be allowed to stay. The nearest company people would repatriate me out to the nearest non-company system, Siren. But they would charge me for the ticket, and I'd start my new life very deeply in debt. What I needed was a job that would pay my way off planet. Unfortunately, I knew only too well that my options were limited to the military or the merchant vessels that visited Nerys periodically. There was a galactic marine recruiting office even on Nerys, and a lot of kids I knew took that option to get out from underneath the company, but I also knew I was never going to be a marine. All that killing people and dying stuff just never appealed to me. That left the Union Hall at Nerysport. I have to confess, I really didn't want to go there either, but... When you're out of options, you take what's left. Next morning, I screwed up my nerve and trammed over to Narrisport. It was one of those perfect, bright, warm days, with soft breezes carrying the spicy, tart smell of grand apples out of the vineyards and into every corner of the town. It wasn't overpowering, but it covered even the hot circuit board smell of the tram. It made the world seem way too cheerful and pleasant. I hated it. The Union Hall was really nothing more than a refurbished hangar, it was cavernous inside, and seemed empty except for a row of data terminals, and a long counter with about five positions, only one of which seemed to be in use. Besides the functionary behind the counter—a grizzled and slightly scary-looking older femme with an artificial arm—I was the only person there. When I stepped in out of the sundazzle, the hall seemed cool and dark, and smelled faintly of an institutional-grade floor-wax. It took my eyes a few seconds to adjust to the light level, and by then the functionary was looking at me expectantly. "'What do you want, kid?' she asked, her voice echoing around the hall. I crossed her position at the counter, noted her name tab said O'Rourke, and smiled tentatively at her. "'I need to get off-planet,' I said. "'Son, this is the hiring hall. The ticket office is down the lane a bit. Just keep going. You can't miss it.' She smiled, a bit nastily, I thought at the time. I tried again. I can't afford a ticket. I need a job that'll take me off-planet. O'Rourke stared hard at me. You need a lot more than that, I'm thinking. Are you looking to hire onto a ship? I just nodded dumbly. She asked, You ever signed the articles before, kid? I could hear the capital letters in the articles as she spoke the words, and I just shook my head. O'Rourke rubbed the back of her neck with her good hand and cast a why-me look at the ceiling. Finally, she sighed and said, Okay, kid, everybody has a story. Tell me yours. I wasn't sure how much to tell her, so I did just a rough outline. I was supposed to start university next semester. My mom is, or was, a professor there. But she died in a flutter crash, and now the company says I have to get off planet because she's no longer employed and I'm no longer a dependent. work stared for a moment, but something in her face changed. "'Okay, kid, good story. Where's your card?' I pulled out my data card and slotted it into her reader. My particulars popped up on the display. O'Rourke looked over the data, scrolling and tisking. She only looked at the date of birth and education level before starting to shake her head. "'Forget it, kid,' she said, not unkindly, but without looking at me. "'No specialty, and you're only just eighteen. "'Technically, I can offer you the articles, "'but there's no open births for quarter shares at the moment.' I wondered what language she was speaking for a few ticks before she noticed my complete lack of comprehension. She explained slowly. You're old enough to get a hiring contract, but you need to have a ship willing to hire you, give you a berth, before you can get a job. With your skill level, kid, that means an entry-level job, what we call a quarter-share berth, and nobody's got an open one on file. She pointed at the data crawl on the wall. We have three ships in port now and two inbound over the next week or so. None of them have any postings open. Only the Cleveland Maru has an opening, but that's a full share berth, and you're not qualified, she added almost kindly. I examined the crawl carefully It listed the ships in port and those due in the next few weeks. Only one had an opening. It was tagged with Cleve Mar in the column marked ship, and I wasn't sure what an AG2 job was, but the pay grade column showed full what's all this stuff mean?" I asked idly. My brain had shut down some time ago, although I hadn't realized it, and my mouth had dangerously engaged without conscious control. She considered me for a tick and shrugged. Sit down, kid. I'll show you a few things. She took me to one of the alcove data ports showed me how to use it. It was a basic model, of course, but it was set up for spacers to be able to scroll through the various jobs, ships, and companies. I'd seen help wanted posts on net, of course, but this was a whole nother bag of grand apples. It showed ship names, company affiliations, size, cargo capacity, propulsion systems, and even a list of the berths. The default setting, of course, showed only the open berths, but I could actually look and see how many of each kind of job was on each ship. After a few ticks of walking me through the controls, O'Rourke went back to her place at the counter. I could see what she meant about the open slots. I went through each ship's particulars. Her summary of the situation seemed to be depressingly accurate. There were relatively few numbers of burrs to begin with. Even as large as the ships were, they didn't need a lot of crew. Out of that number, even fewer were the entry-level quarter-share jobs. "'What's a share?' I asked, calling over to her from where I sat. "'A share is extra pay you get if the voyage is profitable. Owners, captains, and the other officers get the most, but everybody gets something,' she called back. "'So an entry-level job I'd get a quarter of a share?' She chuckled. Well, yeah, but don't be planning to retire on it. It's not much. Better than a spanner to the cranium, but it isn't all that many creds. I was looking through the kinds of duties each job entailed. Engine wiper, mess deck attendant, cargo loader. I realized all these jobs were the lowest level jobs on the ship, and were probably dirty and boring. I sighed. Beggars, as they say, can't be choosers. Unfortunately, even begging wasn't going to get me a job where none existed, so... I shut down the terminal and headed back out in the midday bright. "'Hey, kid,' O'Rourke called. "'If you're serious about getting a berth, pack a bag and be ready to go.' I stopped at the door and looked back at her. I felt like there must be a big cartoon question mark rising above my head. She beckoned me over the counter again. "'Kid, I like you. You remind me of my nephew.' "'Here's how this really works. No ship will pull in here with an open quarter-share berth, but they quite frequently unload a troublemaker.' Some idiot signs on and then doesn't pull his or her weight. They get here to the ass-end of nowhere and get put ashore with no income, limited funds, and no way home. A few days' dirt side gives them a bit of motivation, so to speak, to do a better job. Of course, that leaves the ship short-handed when they get here. "'And if I'm ready to ship out?' I asked. "'Well,' she said slyly, "'you'd have to be ready to go in a few stands' notice, and you can't take much with you. Twenty kilos is the mass allotment for quarter-share, but you don't need clothes, and you can get personal hygiene gear on the ship. The only thing you need to take with you, really, is entertainment cubage and any personal stuff you don't mind losing. I don't need clothes. Ship suits, lad, ship suits. They come with the berth. You'll pay for them out of your first few chits, but ship suits don't come out of your mass allotment. One change of civvies will get you through, if you're careful with them." She was smiling broadly at me, and I had the sense she'd just given me some valuable insight. I had no idea what it might be, but I was pretty sure it was there if I were only smart enough to figure it out. Thanks, O'Rourke. How will you contact me?" She pointed to the display that still had my card data on it. With a couple of keystrokes, she saved it and gave me a broad wink. I think I'll be able to find you if I need you, kid. If you're serious, be ready. The Lois McKendrick is coming in late next week. Rumor is she's got some deadwood that needs seasoning dirtside. She pulled a data cube from a rack under the counter and tossed it at me. Here, read up. It'll save you some problems down the line. I nodded with a smile of thanks, stuffed the cube in my pocket, and headed home to think about what I needed to take with me when I left the planet. How did one fit a life into twenty kilos? It didn't take me long to get back to the flat I'd shared with my mother. It still felt weird walking in and knowing she'd not be back, that I was, after all this time, really alone. It was spine-tingly, and not in a good way. The hardest part was going through my mother's things. She had a ton of professional stuff, like books and papers and such. Her pita had been with her, and lost, in the flitter, of course, but she left a portable computer and the girl things. It made me a bit queasy dealing with her underwear drawer. I I felt silly, feeling squeamish. It wasn't like I didn't fold her underwear while doing laundry, but this was different somehow. Finally, I took her suits and dresses to the local charity house. The underwear drawer I just emptied into the refuse bin without really looking. Books I donated to the local library. Pictures cubes and records went into storage boxes. I packed her diplomas on top of that. It didn't amount to much, actually. Maybe a hundred kilos and five boxes. By comparison, my own gear was easy. Looking around my room, I realized I could walk out and leave all of my junk just laying there and probably wouldn't miss any of it. My PETA was already stocked with stuff, and I had some spare storage cubes and my good boots. The problem was my bag. I only had the heavy suitcase. It massed three kilos empty, and it seemed kind of clunky. After three days of sorting, throwing, filing, and just generally working my way through the flat, I came to the end. At that point, I took out O'Rourke's data cube and slotted it into my PETA. The title was The Spacer's Handbook. It reminded me a little of the scout manual I'd had as a kid everything you needed to know about being a spacer—what to wear, how to wear it, when to salute, and who. There was even a little holo clip showing the proper movement of the hands. The saluting part didn't seem too difficult. We only did that under special circumstances and only to officers. The list of ranks and shares was there—quarter share, half share, full share, on up to owner's share. The thing was huge. I checked the capacity on the chip and gasped when I saw just how big it was. The Encyclopedia Galactica was smaller. I just hoped I wouldn't need to read the whole thing. The introductory chapter grabbed my eye, with a small section titled Shipping Out. It explained that the mass allotment shifted upward as one worked through the ranks, and that the initial twenty kilos was actually plenty. There were shipsuits available aboard, as O'Rourke had said. Personal hygiene items like toothpaste, shampoo, and shaving gear was all standardized and available aboard. The handbook recommended that the new shipmate should report wearing decent civilian attire and not worry about a change of clothing. The illustration showed a somewhat dated picture of what the well-dressed man or woman might wear to a casual dinner with a friend. The jackpot in this section was the recommendation of the duffel bag as a package for loading your gear. It was a kind of bag, woven from lightweight monomole, that was big enough to hold almost a half a cubic meter in volume but massed less than twenty grams and could be folded up to about the size of a handkerchief when empty. It was the standard luggage for spacers, and according to the handbook, available at reasonable cost at any Union Hall. I smiled, thinking that it was time I paid another visit to my friend O'Rourke. In the meantime, I started weighing out gear on the bathroom scale. Twenty kilos turned out to be a lot. Thanks for listening to Episode 1 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from the Lucky Black Cat, a hornpipe in A minor recorded by James Curran and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.dirandis.com slash golden.